Welcome back to The Hot Dish. My name is J.D. Schulten, and today we're going to be talking about rural campaigns. And i got two great guests. Uh, I'd like to first introduce Amanda Lippman. She's the co-founder of and executive director of Run for Something. So, Amanda, thank you for coming and joining us today. I am ecstatic to be talking to you today, J.D. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. And uh, we also have Tessa Gold, who is the former chief of staff and campaign manager for uh, Senator Heidi Heitkamp, who is now the executive director of One Country Project. Tessa, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's hard to top being ecstatic, but I'm really happy to be <laughs> on with Amanda and you, J.D. Well, I think so highly of both of you. And uh, I guess first, Amanda, I would like to start with you and just, uh, could you talk a little bit about Run for Something? Uh, my personal story with it is uh, I heard it on a podcast while I was contemplating life choices in, in early 2017, pretty uh, early when you started. And, and it just kind of motivated me to just another layer of, you know what, I can do this. And I ended up running. So um, uh, I guess... Uh, could you start with what is Run for Something and, and uh, tell a little, a little bit more about that? Yeah, so Run for Something was born of the ashes of the 2016 election. Um, I worked for Hillary for two years doing online fundraising and a couple campaigns before that. But a week after the election, I got a Facebook message from somebody I went to college with who was a public school teacher in Chicago, was thinking about running for office because if Trump could do it, he figured anybody could, and didn't know where to turn to for help. And that to me felt like a symptom of some really big problems in the Democratic Party. You know, a lack of focus on young people, not just as voters, but as leaders. You know, a lack of focus on local elections and local politics in every state, not just the battlegrounds. And when I looked at the bench of talent for the future, I didn't see anyone I was super excited about. So I wrote a plan, uh, built a website, found a co-founder in the incredible operative Ross Morales Riquetto, who's been working in campaigns for about 15 years. And we launched Run for Something on Inauguration Day, thinking it would be small. <laughs> we thought it'd be this like cool side hustle we had for a little while. Instead, we had 1,000 people sign up in the first week. And as of today, more than 75,000 young people all across the country have raised their hands to tell us they want to run. Uh, we've endorsed more than 1,500 and elected nearly 500 young people to local office in 45 states, predominantly women, predominantly people of color. So what was my side hustle is now a very cool project that I'm really glad takes 150% of my time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. And uh, I always like to say when I was running in 2018, that the average member of Congress was uh, 57 years old with a net worth of a million dollars. And I always joke that I was 20 years younger and about a million dollars short of that average. <laughs> so uh, with that, uh, Tessa, can you talk a little bit about your background and in, in all the, uh, I mean, you have an extensive list of campaigns you worked on a lot in uh, rural America. Sure. I would love to. So I always say, if you want to run a campaign in a square state in the middle part of the country, I'm your gal. Um, I've, I've run, I've managed eight congressional uh, campaigns and uh, one Senate race. Um, all in very tough districts and very red districts. Um, I started uh, 1996 was the first race that I managed. Um, at that time, there were three there were three um, Democratic members of the delegation in North Dakota. There were three Democratic members of the delegation in South Dakota. There were two U.S. senators in Nebraska. 
Um, and uh, things have changed quite a bit since then. And so it's been really interesting to see how those changes have happened. But um, that's also one of the reasons that Senator Heitkamp and I uh, really sat down after her Senate loss to, to talk about how we can continue to be involved in a meaningful way, um, but in a different way, not so much in the day-to-day running of campaigns, but really thinking a little bit bigger picture of the sort of, if I knew then what I know now, um, lane of, of thought uh, about being a Democrat in these red states and, and what are the resources that are needed um, when sometimes the national party and the national apparatus pays more attention to the coasts and to the candidates who can really, you know, show uh, the financial, um, that they're in good financial standing before they run. And it makes it really even that much harder for those really good candidates in red states who who aren't as fortunate. And so um, that's what part of what we're trying to do at One Country uh, but why I'm so glad to be with both of you. And I have tremendous respect for Amanda and, and their group. Um, in fact, I've seen her. I feel like Amanda's been on a bit of a media um, tour the last couple of weeks because I feel like I've seen her everywhere. So it's great that I love it when good organizations run by women get a lot of attention. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Amanda, could you talk a little bit about, uh, we come from both kind of a rural background, Tess and myself, and, and could you talk a little bit about uh, rural campaigns and, and um, kind of from your standpoint, uh, uh, just how do you guys approach them? Or, or uh, Because I know, I mean, we see the Democratic Party, it it's, uh, tends to be a little bit more urban, a little bit more coastal. And so uh, if if you could talk about rural a little bit. Yeah, so Run for Something works with folks running for office for the first time, and we work in all 50 states. And one of the things I have loved the most and that I've learned the most about over the last four years of doing this work um, is from the folks who are really running in places where Democrats haven't competed in some places for four or six or 10 or or more cycles. Um, the number of candidates we work with who are the first can- Democrat to run in their district, and those are usually rural places, um, it, it continues to grow each cycle. And we've really learned a lot from those local campaigns about what works and what doesn't. And you and Tessa are quite clearly the experts here. Um, but I want to point out some of the stuff that we have learned, in particular from our 2020 research. You know, after each cycle, um, we did this in 2018, we did it again in 2020, we do a big debrief with the candidates we work with. Um, now, for some context, Run for Something only works with young people, folks 40 or younger. We only work with first or second time candidates, and we only work with people running for a state house, state senate, or below. Um, so it's all local folks, it's all young people, it's all first time candidates. That being said, a few of the things that I wanted to point out as we talk about rural candidates. Um, Our rural candidates were more likely to cite local leaders or external organizations as the thing that gave them the push to run and less likely to cite community engagement relative to urban or suburban candidates, which I find deeply interesting and also makes a lot of sense intuitively when you think about the rural communities. Um, Our rural candidates were, and this again makes intuitive sense, but I think the numbers are useful, Uh, 43% of rural candidates cited problems with remote campaigning, and 19% cited running in a conservative area as their biggest challenges for campaigns. 
um, they were much less likely to cite the being surprised by how much money and power matter. You know, urban candidates said 19% of them said that was a problem, whereas only 3% of rural candidates said that was a thing. Whereas uh, nearly a quarter of our rural candidates said that they were um, surprised by the complexity of voter engagement. A couple of the other things that rural candidates said more about, which you know we can dig into all of this, um, half of rural candidates said it was very difficult to hire qualified staff. Doesn't surprise me. Um, and they said that it was really hard to build community amongst other people running, which again, intuitive, but I think is worth thinking about as we focus long-term, what can we do to help more rural candidates run is facilitate community between them. Finally, and this one made me really sad, but I want to call it out as well. Rural candidates were the least likely to tell us they will definitely run again. Still, about 60% of them told us they will, but that's much lower than for urban or suburban candidates. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, uh, and those are fascinating stats. I, um, I feel like I can relate to a lot of those just from my experience. Uh, but, but Tessa, do you want to talk a little bit about how uh, the, the campaign side of things and how it is tougher to get staff and, and things like that? Yeah, I'd love to. I, you know, I think um, there are, a, we all have, we all have mentors in the political field, right? And, and the really good ones um, are mentors to a lot of people I've, I've come to learn. And, and that's kind of fascinating to me, but, but it's like these little networks develop under good campaign managers who then sort of, uh, mentor and, um, help, uh, build up staff that go on to other campaigns. For example, um, in 2004, I managed Stephanie Herself Sandlin's special election in South Dakota. At the same time, the majority leader, Tom Daschle, was running against John Thune. Hot race. Both both were hot races. One, because it was a, the only house special. And then second, because um, the Stephanie Thune matchup. So it was pretty interesting because some of the folks working on that Daschle campaign are some of the engineers of the Obama presidential run, right? Um, and and you've got people like Dan Pfeiffer, Steve Hildebrand. I mean, the list goes on and on um, that have gone on to to do more and bigger things. And a lot of those people are homegrown South Dakotans. Um, so there's a lot of pride in that. But but I also think what then tends to happen, and this is not a knock on South Dakota because I see it everywhere else, um, too, is that. People leave and, and move on to bigger campaigns, and then the talent pool just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so one of the things, and I think Amanda accurately described this, um, is something that we're really going to try to focus on at One Country Project, and that is not only tra doing trainings in rural America for campaign staff, but but developing them in ways and giving them the support that they need to stay there so that it's not always this void of talent after a cycle. And I do think that when you talk to national donors in the Democratic Party, um, maybe credit a lot to Stacey Abrams and what happened in Georgia. But I do think that there is a much better appreciation for the importance of field, not just six months before election day, but a presence that um, I sort of think of them more as congressional outreach type of staff that are going and getting involved in the community and identifying 
who are the young people on the school board, on the county commission, um, working in kind of nonpartisan roles, but definitely potential future community leaders um, in really developing from the ground up, but most importantly, having a presence that is not just uh, a couple months before election day. Exactly. You know, I went in between running in 2018 and 2020, uh, I went to a DCCC uh, event, uh, some sort of candidate training, and they were talking about diversity in staff. And one of the things I wanted to mention was in 2018, I mean, we were not a red to blue. Uh, we, we weren't uh, in Iowa. Everyone was run for governor and in other uh, congressional races. It was really hard to get staff. But at the same time, I was very proud of of the ability to get diversity in our, our uh, campaign staff. We had people of color. We had LGBTQ uh, representatives. We had uh, a lot of women. We had we had a Republican field organizer who just really hated Steve King and wanted to work for us. That's my <laughs> and, favorite kind of Republican. And and so uh, it, I think that's one thing that we shouldn't lose sight of. Also, is you know I was in one of the hardest uh, uh, districts to run in, and we were still able to get di- a diverse staff. And I think that was a huge part of our success uh, of getting into communities. Yeah, it's really important. And and I would just add, um, running in a lot of Great Plains or managing races in a lot of Great Plains states, uh, Native American staffers are also, um, they're, they're very hard to find. Um, but, but it's so absolutely necessary because they, they just understand the community that they live in and they care about in ways that we could, that I could, as a, as a white blonde girl could never understand. Um, and, and while I have great relationships, um, with the tribes, it, it's, it's just not the same. Yeah. Uh, Amanda, could you talk a little bit, if there's somebody listening out there who's uh, younger, uh, and is interested in running, uh, what type of advice would you give to them? Do it. (laughs) Um, don't second guess yourself don't hesitate Um, you will never and I think this is especially true for young women and young candidates of color but more broadly you will never have the kind of resume you think you need Um, no one is going to come tap you on the shoulder and tell you it's your turn I am telling you it is your turn it is your time even if you don't think you can win, there is so much value that comes from the act of campaigning, from actually running, especially when you run a campaign the right way, that really builds community and lays the groundwork for wins down the road. Um, if you're thinking about running, whether it's in 2021 or 2022, or maybe four or 10 years down the road, start thinking about, make sure that you have the network in your community. And I think this is especially true in rural campaigns, but it's really true regardless of where you are. Um, you want to make sure that you both can genuinely represent the community you're trying to run from and also really understand them and have ties there. doesn't necessarily mean born and raised, especially for young people who may have moved around a little bit or gone away for school and then come back, Um, but to really feel like you have ties. And one of the questions we ask candidates is like, this is more true pre-pandemic than now, but if you were going to have a launch party a week from now, could you fill the room? Do you know where it would be? Do you know where you would hang up the flyers or how you'd get people in the door? Um, It's a way of conceptualizing, like, am I the person that people call when they have problems they need help solving in the neighborhood or in the community? Um, 
really make sure you understand the rules. This is a very simple one, but uh, it's a way that they tend to kick young people and sort of non-conventional candidates off the ballot um, is by, you know, sort of, uh, I wanted, what's the right word here? Um, by finding the sort of like nitpicking around the rules and finding ways in which you broke the things that weren't written down. So maybe they say you need 1500 petition signatures, but you actually need 3000 because they're going to throw half of them off um, that kind of thing. So make sure you understand the rules and the deadlines. And the third thing is, is really start to show up. Um, if you're not already deeply engaged in local activism and local party politics, start getting out there, you know, whether that means being on the Zooms right now or the virtual town halls or hopefully in person again one day soon, the relationships that you have with others in your community will be your greatest currency and your most important one and one that you can't speed up the time it takes to build. Um, so start being there in person when you can and and get to know the folks, not just the ones at the front of the room speaking, but the ones at the back of the room with the clipboards checking people in. Each relationship that you build will further your campaign. And I don't mean that in a slimy transactional way. I mean that those are the friends you're going to make that when you decide to run <laughs> will be the ones being your first donation and being the ones knocking doors with you, making calls with you, uh, and helping lay the groundwork for what is hopefully a winning campaign, but either way is a meaningful one. Those are great advice. Uh, I wish I would have had that <laughs> a little bit sooner. Um, Tessa, could you talk a little bit about if if I'm a candidate who's looking to run, how about from a, a, a staff side? Like what, what are the first things you should do? Who should I be connecting with? And what are some of the first things I should be doing? Uh, if you're a staffer wanting to work on a campaign? Oh, no, if I'm, a, let's say I want to run for a local office here, who should I be calling? Who should I hire as staff, I guess? That's, that's uh, kind of my question. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think what's really important uh, uh, just to kind of piggyback on what Amanda said is to know what the, know what the requirements are to run. Um, it, it's, it's, it's sad how many folks uh, decide they want to run for something sort of developed a courage, laid a plan, but, you know, forgot to get the signatures to get on the ballot or didn't get enough signatures or whatever. So um, definitely be well-versed in campaign fine, in campaign uh, laws and regs for, for whatever um, position that you're running for. In terms of finding good staff, you know, I think the, the best advice that I would give for, for a more localized office is to really look at the exactly what Amanda said is to look at your friends and look at the people who care about you and want to see you succeed. Um, and if they're a little bit or a lot bit type A, that helps too. Um, because there's always more stuff coming at you than less, especially when you're taking more and more on. Um, and, uh, Having, having good organization is really important. And frankly, it's why I think women candidates are, are such better managers of their time and making decisions about um, what, what sort of what, what rises to, to be able to have the resource of time because time is the money is really, really important. Don't get me wrong, but time is the most important asset that you have during a campaign. And so using it in a smart and effective way is really important to being successful. That's great. Uh, Amanda, what are, where do you see uh, run for something going and how has it changed from 2018 to 2020? You're in your third cycle now. Uh, what are you guys looking to do? Oh, such a good question. Well, for one, 2021 is not an off year. 
um, to anyone, it's simply an odd year. Uh, we are expecting to endorse about 400 candidates um, in 2021 alone. We've already got 72 on the ballot. Um, I expect that number two, that number will absolutely be increasing over the next six months or so. Um, and then we're hoping to continue to grow into 2022 with hopefully endorsing about a thousand candidates next year. Um, we're also looking about setting up some really sustained um, permanent state-based engagement. Um, by that, I mean, what does it look like if you are in, say, Kansas and are thinking about running for office, who is the run for something Kansas person you talk to and how can we help you? Um, and what that looks like is still sort of in flux and more to come, but we're really excited about those conversations and making sure that we, now that we're out of sort of the startup phase and really have a good understanding of how to recruit people, what do local candidates need, how to reach especially young people, um, how do we build this in a way that will last? Because what has shocked me more than anything that we've done over the last four years is that January 2021 was our best recruitment month yet. Um, we had more people sign up so far in 2021 than we did in like the first three or four months of 2020 and the first three or four months of 2020 of 2019. Um, the momentum isn't going anywhere. The demand is still really high and people are still very excited and eager to think about running for office. So we've got to keep scaling with them. Um, we have to make sure that what we're building is sustainable and long-term and that ultimately we can start to cultivate a genuinely amazing, both local, like set of local leaders and also a really incredible bench of talent for the future. Yeah, that's great. That, that's, that's so phenomenal that people are still engaged in, in wanting to do this. Uh, I think that is going to have a long-term effect. I mean, honestly, I was just a an active voter in 2016, and after that election, just got motivated to do something beyond myself. And and so, uh, to see that passion still out there, that that that's exciting. Uh, Tessa, I want to ask you if I'm a rural candidate in a very difficult district, should I run, and why would you say that that uh, if I should or should not run. Yeah, I, I think it's important to, of course, first, you know, really know what, what, um, how people vote in that district, what the democratic performance is. Cause I, frankly, that's what I care about. Um, and I'm sure the people I'd be talking to do too, but you know, I think that you, you can't, you can't make change unless you're willing to take a risk and be a part of it. Um, and I love that the, I love and I'm not surprised by people's continued enthusiasm uh, um, to be involved in government. I, I think that what happened in, on January 6th opened up a lot of people's eyes about how um, how precious and important our system of government is. And it's it's worth um, being a part of to make sure that it continues for the younger kids that we all care about in our own families and in our communities. Um, and I also think that I just want to make sure to mention that there's other ways to be involved beyond running. And, um, you know, I worry a little bit that people get too comfortable right now being couch activists during COVID that, you know, being snarky on Twitter while fun, and I fully endorse, um, you also have to get up and walk around and you got to talk to people and you got to, you know, you've got to be out in your community to really know what people are thinking and saying. And so 
of course, being safe while doing it. But I think that field just can't be shelved in times like these. And the value of field and the way that it's done is something that our party really needs to pay close attention to in the coming months to make sure that we are developing best practices and we are using language that doesn't you know, slam the door on an opportunity to hear something from someone that could be valuable to a campaign. And I know, JD, uh, you're kind of smiling and you and I have talked about this a lot, but Iowa is sort of the petri dish of testing when it comes to these kinds of um, methodologies. And so um, I look forward to continuing to not only work with you on this, but also um, organizations like Amanda's who really are collectors of such valuable information. And, and we've got to all work together to get it out to the people who can use it and put it into practice. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I, I, I mean, I'm completely blessed being here in Iowa and the amount of attention we get, we're very spoiled. Uh, I'll say that, but uh, how about, this question, if we, if I'm a staff, if I want to work on a staff, I don't necessarily want to run, but I want to help somebody run. Uh, do you guys have any recommendations on, on that? Uh, Amanda, do you, do you, do you guys do anything with that or is it, is it just to run? We certainly do in some ways. Um, we have a network of folks we call our mentors, which if you go to runforsomething.net slash help, you can learn more about um, and it's ways to help campaigns uh, for free, unfortunately not for paid at this point, um, with whatever skill set you may have. So if you are a designer or a graphic or an like a web developer or you're a policy expert or you maybe are like a public speaking coach, um, really whatever your skill set is, we have a candidate who could use your help. Um, so when candidates write into us and say, I need you know support on XYZ issue, we connect them with our mentors. We also have really, yeah, it's it's a very cool way of being able to scale the sort of individualized support. And it's a way for volunteers with really specialized skills um, to put them to use for local campaigns. We also work really closely with our partners at Arena who do staff training. Um, once folks go through their staff training program, we help match a lot of their um, alumni with our endorsed candidates who are looking for a staff. I will say candidly, and I think this is sort of a chicken and the egg problem, one of the reasons that a lot of our rural candidates and really all of our candidates have problems hiring staff is because they don't have the money to pay staff what folks need to make a living wage. So really, I think the onus comes to, and like most things, it comes to funders to make sure that these candidates are as fully funded as possible so that they can bring on really talented staff and pay them what they're worth. Um, we will then be able to, and if we're funding sustainable infrastructure outside of election day, you know, from November to November, but the odd years, uh, we will have folks who can make a living wage doing organizing work and be getting better and more talented. You know, this is an ecosystem. Part of the problem with not having staff is that really good people can't stay working in politics between election cycles because there, there isn't the work and there isn't the work because there isn't the money. Um, so, you know, one of the ways that folks who are thinking about helping these campaigns, and it's sort of like a two steps removed is by funding the organizing work that happens between campaigns, whether that's through groups um, on the ground, whether that's through state parties or county parties or groups like Run for Something, you know, or groups like One Country, it all helps um, because it all makes sure that people who will go work on these campaigns have a chance to do professional development in a stable way. I, I cannot uh, uh, approve that enough because 
what I see and what we saw in 2020, I mean, we were able to raise just so much money for, for uh, the Biden campaign and for the Senate campaigns, but then what's left over. And uh, that's, that's kind of what I want to work on next is, you know, we got to build the infrastructure. So if we have a good candidate in some of these more uh, uh, hard to reach places, uh, we need to be able to, to be there and have that infrastructure in place to have success. And so uh, donating to, to uh, state parties and, and run for something and stuff like that, that's absolutely, I, I feel, uh, is right on. Uh, uh, Tessa, how about how about you? If if uh, I'm a staffer and and want to get involved, who do, who do you who would I connect with? Who should I call? What should I do? Yeah, um, well, I, two things. Well, first, let me answer your question. Um, this sounds super easy and obvious, but talk to the person you want to work with. Talk to the person who you want to work for. Um, sometimes your willingness to drive 400 miles to have coffee with someone because you want to have the job, um, that says a lot about your seriousness in taking that job, but also that you clearly have done your homework and this is uh, a good fit and something that you feel like you can make a difference in. That's really important. Um, it's also important because if you want to work for a candidate who is a more well-known commodity, there are probably many layers of people that you would have to go through to get to that person. Um, and so you've really got to do a full court press and, and be um, your own best advocate, which is frankly hard for a lot of kids in the Midwest and the South um, to do. And so uh, that, that would be my first level of advice, but also cast a very wide net. And, you know, it's funny because I've lived in Washington for a number of years now, and it actually is a pretty small town. And you are two or three degrees separated, um, I wish from Kevin Bacon, but from someone who knows someone who's worked with someone on the campaign that you're trying to get on. So um, that would be another route. And also, um, don't forget about your college professors and your college Democrat groups. Go back to them and, and use that as resources as well, because um, th those are really good places that I would look um, when I'm looking to fill out, especially um, the field team. So that, that, that would be important. And I just wanted to comment on something that you and Amanda were saying about the money in politics and what that means, especially for rural candidates, because I think it means something very different than it does um, for some of the bigger Senate races, especially in this last cycle. And it seems like every campaign finance report that came out in the presidential was another record-breaking, record-breaking number, um, you know, raising upwards of $100 million in a month sometimes. It's, it's insane. It's absolutely crazy. And I have my own feeling about public financing of campaigns. I'm sure you can guess what it is. But um, you can't just, in rural America, you can't just keep buying all the TV. You can't just keep buying more and more news spots. You have to talk to people in mediums in which they receive information, whether it's talk radio or on um, specific Ag Week you know, uh, websites or forums. Um, it's so specialized and it's so diverse that it's so important that you really get um, 
a media consultant who understands that. And I, I think we're stepping away from that a little bit. And that concerns me, especially in rural America. I think you're exactly right. I mean, there's some radio stations that may not have the um, uh, as much uh, listeners as like radio stations in Des Moines, but it gets every voter in that area as well and, and tuned in. And I couldn't agree with you more. So as we wrap up here, uh, Amanda, I want to go with you. Uh, where can people find you and uh, where can people find more about uh, Run for Something? So best place to go for Run for Something info is runforsomething.net. If in particular you're looking to run for office, um, runforwhat.net is a place you can enter your address and see all of the local offices available to you in 2021. Um, you'll then get added to the Run for Something candidate pipeline and we'll follow up with more information on how to actually get on the ballot and all of the things we can do to help you. Um, if you want to follow me and my nightmarish thoughts on Twitter, I'm at Amanda Littman. Um, it's, it's, it's a choice you can make to, to watch <laughs> unravel in real time. <laughs> Uh, how about Tessa? How about you? Yeah, so obviously, you know, uh, JD, just as well as me, onecountryproject.com. Um, we're also on Twitter, Facebook, Insta, all the things. Um, we'd love to have you join us on um, our efforts to really try to reconnect the Democratic Party to voices in rural America and thinking about things in the lens of, of how it impacts people where they work and live and have most likely done that for generations. Well, I can't thank you enough both for uh, joining me here today. And uh, with that, that's another episode of Hot Dish. 